Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. Uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. We're going to read from verse 16 all the way through to the end of the chapter. And I'm just going to start actually with the last verse, so you know where we're headed right from the get-go. In verse 33 of John 16, in the last part of that verse, we hear these words. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he says, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now go back to verse 16. Same, same chapter, John chapter 16, verse 16. We'll read through this section. He says, A little while and you will know and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved him, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and now has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Lord, we pray to you, the overcomer, who has brought us into your ministry, brought us into your family, uh, brought us into your confidence and declare that we are also more than conquerors and that no weapon of the enemy formed against us will prosper. We pray that this word which is given to us by your spirit, spirit-breathed to your spirit-filled church, would equip us as men and women of God. We pray that we would be fully equipped for every good work because of your word to us in John 16. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so verse 16 you go back there, and, and Jesus, it, it, he says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. 
Now, we, we pretty much know for certain, because we've read the end of the book, and we've read Matthew, Mark, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, that they don't get this. We also know it from the immediate context, because the disciples talk among themselves and say, what is he talking about? But even at the end of the chapter in verse 29 and following, when they say, oh, you're speaking plainly, we totally understand what you're saying. They don't totally understand what he's saying. There's kind of a, um, almost a, a false confidence there at the end when they think they get it and they don't. Um, but this reminds us, this verse, verse 16, reminds us that this is a goodbye. This is a goodbye that Jesus is offering. He is saying, a little while and you will not see me. You're not going to, I'm going, I'm leaving. And that's been the, the context of the whole upper room discourse. Jesus saying, I am leaving and this is how you live now with me being gone. But depending on how they could understand the second part, I, and again, you will see me because I go to the Father, this is either an encouragement or kind of a warning. Now, we know that they will see him again just in a few short days because Jesus will rise from the dead and he will reveal himself in, a, in bodily form, in his body, his resurrected body, to the disciples. He'll have Thomas put his hand in his side and touch the wounds in his hands. He'll speak with him. He'll eat breakfast with them on the beach in Galilee after a night of fishing. Like he, he, They will see him uh, because of the resurrection, because of his unity with the Father, because he goes to the Father. But, but again, they, they don't understand that. They're not thinking resurrection thoughts yet. We know that. So if we took this... Uh, as it would have been heard in that upper room. We know they're confused. We know, though, that they, they've heard this over and over again, and it's starting to sink in, that Jesus is leaving. Jesus is leaving. And they ask, they, they question and, and think, you know, what does he mean that we'll see him again because he goes to the Father? Now, what would you think if you heard those words from a friend of yours saying, well, you know, I'm leaving. Uh, you'll never, you're, you're not going to see me, but then you'll see me again because I'm going to God. Well, what does that mean? That means they're going to die. And Jesus says, when he says, you will see me again, this could be a warning to them that life is short. And so that's probably some of the things that they're thinking of. And you know, it's not the worst things to think of. We are, uh, we, we are told to, to consider the shortness of our lives. Uh, we even pray with, with the psalmist, you know, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. So Jesus in saying, you're not going to see me, but then you are going to see me because I'm going to God. They could be sad because they know Jesus is leaving and then also sad in a more existential kind of way as they realize, oh, my life is short too. I'm going to die as well. So they, they start talking to each other about these things in verse 17 and 18, which I'll read again. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, key word there, key phrase, among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Truer words have never been spoken. Okay, this is the disciples at their finest saying, we don't know what he's saying. We don't get it. This confusion is real. Um, and, and it's not wrong to be confused. Um, but there is a wrong way to be confused. You know, there, there's a lot of other feelings, sensations, emotions that we go through in life where we have a, a negative kind of feeling towards that thing. You know, I, sh I shouldn't be confused. I should understand. It's better to know than not to know. Um, it's, 
it's not wrong to be confused, but there's a wrong way to be confused. Same with, you know, anger. The anger, it's not necessarily wrong to be angry, but there's certainly a wrong way to be angry. And you can kind of tie these things together even, because the wrong way to be confused is shown us here when it says that the disciples talked amongst themselves. They talked among them, amongst themselves when they were confused, when the truth was literally in the room with them. Actually there, sitting at their table, Jesus is there, and they're talking amongst themselves, saying we don't understand him. Um, you know, you can... You see this again with, with anger or other, other emotions that you may not feel uh, reconciled to. You know, there's a wrong way to feel those things, but the right way is to feel those things in the presence of God. And instead of trying to figure it out by yourself. They're confused, but the right way to be confused is to go to the truth and seek the wisdom of the Lord from the Lord himself. The right way to be sad. You know, obviously, it's not wrong to, to be brokenhearted, to be grieving, but there, there is a wrong way to do those things. There is. There's, there's a way to, to embrace grief in such a way that it destroys you and the people around you. The correct way to grieve is to grieve in the presence of the Lord. To be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. We, we know these verses. We know Jesus became angry, even though, you know, he was never sinful, but he still flipped over tables. The correct way to, to be human, really, in all of these things, is to be human in the presence of God. When we separate and, and just have these things amongst ourselves, our confusion, our anger, our, 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 our sadness, or whatever, um, you know, we, when we take those things away from the way, the truth, and the life, then those things will become confusing, they will become destructive, uh, and we and the people around us will be victims uh, of this. But the, the disciples, they're, they're confused in the wrong way, because they said amongst themselves, we don't understand, when the right thing to do would have been to go to God himself, to go to Jesus himself, and say, we do not understand. And then it becomes not just a question, it becomes a confession. And, and that's what we are. Uh, Orthodox Christianity is sometimes called confessional Christianity. We believe. The confession is the creeds. We believe Jesus is God. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in life everlasting. We believe sin is real. That uh, hell is hot and that eternity is for a long time. Okay, those aren't the official Christian creeds, but you get what I'm saying. We believe these things. When you go to the Lord with your experience, then it becomes confessional and not just a question. You compare this with um, you know, certain branches of agnosticism, okay? Agnosticism is that belief like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God. Um, but then you get into hard agnosticism, which says you cannot know if there is a God. Yeah, for a while, you don't hear about this anymore in the church so much, but the emergent church was a great big, you know, crisis um, not too long ago. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it started. And, and there was an... Um, there's an attitude there of asking questions, which isn't necessarily wrong, but being very opposed to any substantial answers. Um, you know, and, and, and th this, can, this attitude can develop into an intellectual arrogance or reveal itself to be a kind of intellectual arrogance. You know, it's either I can figure this out on my own, apart from the divine, or no one will ever be able to figure this out on their own, and you can't know. 
Um, you know, you think of Hosea, Hosea 4.6 saying, My people are consumed for lack of knowledge. But then we read in James 4, You have not because you ask not. Um, you know, you have not because you ask not. And, and uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. So again, it, it's, not, it's not wrong for the disciples to be confused. It's not wrong for you to be confused. It's not wrong for you to have a doubt, have a question, have to, uh, things that you wrestle with intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. But the right way to do the wrestling is uh, through confession. It is to take those pieces that aren't matching up to your father. Um, the way I always uh, I talk about this is, is in terms of, of puzzles. Uh, because, you know, my dad uh, would build little wooden puzzles and uh, bring them home, and I'd be able to solve some of them, and some of them I, I wouldn't be able to solve. You know, as a, as a kid growing up, he'd bring these home. You know, it's puzzles that he'd build. Make the cube, make the square, make the triangle out of all these different shaped pieces. Uh, and if I couldn't do it, if I couldn't do the puzzle, uh, he was always more than happy to show me the trick. Uh, or usually what he would actually do is show me um, a hint so that I could still feel like I solved it, maybe. Um, but but there's, there's something there. The Lord does give us some tough things to chew on. Uh, have you read Job? Uh, have you read the scripture where there, there's puzzles, there's things that, that would lead us to this end where we want to kind of talk amongst ourselves and say, I don't get it. I, what's going on? But the, the reason why he brought that home to you is not just so you can be confused perpetually. These puzzles that are yours are yours in order, in part, to bring them to your Father who, who delights to reveal these things to you. Now, you can look ahead and see kind of the, the, the end uh, of their confusion, the beginning of the end, at least. You can look ahead in verse 24 and see the lesson that Jesus is giving the disciples. He says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And there, of course the disciples had asked for some things, but we see their tendency here was not to go to the source. Ad fontes, the reformers called it. Go to the sources. So talking about the, the sources of the text, to the scripture, to the, the Greek and Hebrew. But, but, but we want to go to the source. That's where the water is the cleanest. And so instead of being confused by themselves away from Christ, even though he's in the room, Jesus says, you haven't asked me anything, but if you ask, you'll receive and your joy will be full. So before we even get into 19 and the rest of this chapter, um, verse 19 and the rest of the chapter, you know, take the application if it fits. Uh, take this, you know, the, your experiences that you wrestle with apart from God are meant to be wrestled with in his presence. Um, it's okay if you don't understand everything. It's okay if you feel a certain way sometimes. The, the key is to feel and experience and think through those things, those confusing aspects, in the presence of God. You want the truth? Go to the truth. You want to find the way? Go to the way. Now in verse 19, it says, Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Now it's interesting that they, to note that they desired to ask him, but they held back. They, they held back from Jesus. And, you know, last week we talked about um, knowing someone spiritually uh, versus just knowing them 
you know, casually or knowing them locationally because, oh, well, they're just, they're close to me, so I know them. Um, and when we talked about how Peter and the other disciples knew Jesus so much better after he went away. And it, bring, it brings clarity, it sh sh uh, shines a light on the statement that Jesus said that it's for your benefit that I go away. We can see how that worked out. Right now, the disciples are not yet in a place where they are drawing near to God. They will. They'll, they'll get there. The Holy Spirit will come and bring them and usher them into the presence of the holiest. But now they, they wish they could ask, but they don't really know how, and so they try to figure it out on their own. You don't have to be like this. If you want to ask, ask. If you want to solve a problem, then spend the time with that problem in the presence of God. I inquiring, of course, asking the questions, that wasn't necessarily the problem. Um, it's the amongst yourselves part, leaving Jesus out of the conversation that was the problem. Why would they do that? Why would they want to try and solve this problem on their own without Jesus? I mean, I'm sure you might ask the same question to yourself. Why would you? Why would you ever try to do anything without him? Without him, you can do nothing. Jesus just told them that in chapter 15. Vine in the branches. If you're a dead branch on the side of the road, cut off from the tree, you're not going to bear any fruit. That's not the way it works. Why would they hold back? Well, uh, Jesus is confusing. That's one reason. Sometimes he says things that they don't understand, and then, then they just kind of, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And Jesus says uncomfortable things. You know, that, that's very true. Jesus says uncomfortable things. He calls them out when they're wrong. So maybe they don't, they don't want to go have that conversation, because that conversation can be difficult. Jesus tells them when they are at fault. Now, these aren't good reasons to avoid the conversation with Jesus that needed to happen, but they're very real reasons. And there's still reasons why some people withdraw from the one who has all the answers, who has your best interest in mind. They withdraw and they, they, they avoid those tough conversations because you know what? Sometimes, sometimes the answers that God gives, often the answers that God gives, aren't what you want them to be. In fact, you know, it's been said in many ways uh, by different people, but if, if the God you worship always agrees with you, then it's not God. <laughs> That's not God. That is a God of your own imagination. That where he always says that your ideas are good ideas and that, that you're doing just fine and that you understand perfectly or it's okay that you don't. Just sit back. You don't need to learn anything. You don't need to learn anything new about yourself. You never need to repent. That's not God. That God is kind of scary. And the disciples are withdrawing even though they want, they want to ask but they're, they're not. Um... These aren't good reasons the disciples have. To, there aren't any good reasons to leave Jesus out of the conversation. Enter in. Even if verse 20 is coming, look at verse 20. It says, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. Now just stop there at the comma. At this point, some of the disciples are thinking, This is why we don't ask you more questions, Jesus carry on after the comma. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow 
but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Now, remember that this is the same night on which Jesus was betrayed. This is hours, not days, hours from the cross. Sorrow is coming. When Jesus says in 20, verse 20, he says that you will weep and lament. He's not talking about some imaginary future. He's talking about the next day, even that same night. The sorrow itself, we see, will be transformed into joy. Now, there's something worth noting, and I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but this isn't an exchange of sorrow for joy, which the Bible speaks about other places. You trade beauty for ashes. This is beauty in ashes. It actually says beauty from ashes uh, in that passage. But this is, this is not a, a trade or an exchange for joy. Jesus says that the sorrow will be turned into joy, meaning the sorrow itself will itself not be avoided or corrupted or destroyed. The sorrow itself will be transformed into joy. How in the world does that happen? Well, it doesn't, aside from the cross. <clears throat> what is their sorrow? Their sorrow, his sorrow, is the cross, its crucifixion. But where is the source of the sinner's joy. It's the cross. Now, this is a spiritual truth that we cannot arrive at on our own. It, it's so good, and you know it's not made up because we couldn't make something like this up. The disciples, if they were left to themselves to discuss things amongst themselves, would never have come to the conclusion that it is the cross where we glory. It is the cross that must be proclaimed. It is in the cross where we take our joy. The sorrow of the world, the worst crime ever committed, is the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross is the sorrow, but the cross is the joy. Sorrow and joy are as connected as mother and child at the moment of birth. A baby being born is a holy, awesome, terrible joy. That's just what it is. But evidently, the, the pain is worth the joy, or else there would not be such thing as siblings. And then another point Jesus is making here is this. Yes, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be horrible suffering. It is going to be terrible. And then it's going to be great. And he uses the, the, the metaphor of woman and child and, and uh, giving birth, and every metaphor does break down when you press it too far, so don't, don't try. Um, but in this sense, Jesus is, is using this as a metaphor saying, you know, babies are great, and there's only one way to get them. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Now he's beginning to be clear. And this is a clear and, unfortunately, a quickly forgotten promise of resurrection. 
the joy is evident in the book of Acts. We read it there. We, even in persecution, we've been talking about that for the past weeks in our study in, in John. And we've gone to Acts 5 and seen that the disciples, when beaten, rejoice, that they're even counted worthy. And we see that it wasn't that suffering was exchanged for joy and that they had a short period of trouble and then after that it was just a bunch of happiness. It was that sorrow itself is turned into joy. It is resurrected. It is transformed. And while the cross, the cross was horrible, uh, there was no effort in the early church to forget the cross. There was no effort to sweep that ugly story of crucifixion under the rug and say, yeah, you know, the empty tomb, that's where it's at. It's the empty tomb. The cross became the symbol of Christianity very early on. That wasn't some Roman Catholic invention or something like that. The cross became the central symbol of the church. And in verse 23, he says, and in that day, he says, when you see me, you will ask me nothing. Now that's interesting. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He says in that day you're not going to ask me anything. Why not? Because you're going to have direct access to the Father. And, and this, of course, is the theology of the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus died for our sins to give us unhindered access to God the Father. That's what he has done. But now, even while now he's saying, I, I know you want to ask me and you can't, you hesitate, you, you draw back and, and you don't draw near. And until now, you haven't asked me things. You haven't asked me the important stuff. But the time is coming when you see me. And again, he is speaking here of the, the post-resurrection experience of all these disciples. After Jesus rises from the dead and they, they talk to each other, he says, you're going to have joy and no one will be able to take that joy from you even though the suffering won't stop. Some of these disciples, some of these very men at the table would be crucified themselves. And he says, that joy is never going to be taken from you, even by a cross. And, and now he's, he's saying, when you see me and your joy is full, you're going to ask the Father. You're not going to ask me. You're going to ask my Father for things. You're going to have the same access to God that His only begotten Son enjoys. They have asked for some things. Uh, remember the James and John asking through their mother that they would sit at the right hand and the left in, in His kingdom. Um, you know, you can glance back at verse... Five and see that Jesus says, no one asks where are you going, even though we saw that they actually had asked where you were going. And, and, and the, the difference here in what Jesus is saying, he is, he is speaking to the heart of the matter. And he says, you haven't asked me for anything. It puts a question in their heart when they say, well, we thought we had asked you for some stuff. And they realize we haven't asked you for what we should have. What should they have asked for? They should have asked for understanding, for wisdom. Uh, James 1.5, let anyone who lacks, they obviously lack, they say they don't understand, they should have done that. You know, verse 18, when they, uh, it says we do not know what he's saying, this is in the context of verse 24, where he says you have not asked, you have asked nothing in my name. When understanding comes, uh, experiential understanding, the understanding that comes from doing a job 
having your hands actually on the plow and not looking back. When un that kind of understanding comes, joy follows. Paul, he said that he would give it all. He would give it all up to know the power of resurrection. That knowledge is worth pursuing. And we can ask for it, and God gives it liberally and without reproach. I'm going to read Philippians uh, 3, 7. I think, I think it's, it's cool to see you know, where the church came from, from this depressed, sad upper room to a robust church standing on Christ, the solid rock that Paul is writing to. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, He says, For what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And you see in Paul's, uh, his, his enthusiastic prayer here, that he's saying, I would give it all up even to have the fellowship of his sufferings. How can a person say that? Because he believes the words of Jesus here by saying, you will be sorrowful. That's a given. That's a promise. But your joy will be, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And Paul knows about the joy, the knowing God and the power of his resurrection. That's where the joy is. That's the kind of thing Paul asked for and that's the kind of thing God gives, right? Um, in uh, verse 25, we'll keep rolling here. In verse 25 it says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See now, you are speaking plainly, and using no figure of speech. Now, we are sure that you know all things, and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Now, the confusion is beginning to lift. Now, Jesus is going to say, you don't really get it. If you did get it, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't scatter when the shepherd is struck. Uh, you poor lost sheep. But you do see that the, the, the feelings of confusion are beginning to lift. The plain speech they're talking about is that I am going and, and then especially when he says the Father loves you because you loved me. Um, you know, this kind of ties back to the rest of the, the Upper Room Discourse. You know, what was chapter 15 all about? It was about abiding in Christ. Fellowship with God. In chapter 14, you know, we have the famous statements of Christ saying, I am the way to the Father. And there's an emphasis on Christ being the only path a person can take to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now he's saying, I'm going away. In order to make a way, and in order to be the way, 
to God. These are the claims of Jesus. These are the hopes of the saints. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what we rejoice in. And now, without any metaphors of vine or branches or labor and delivery, he says, the Father loves you. That's what I'm telling you. The Father himself loves you. He is the bridge. He didn't make God loving. Jesus did not go and turn down the dial on, on God's glory or something, but he gives us access to the Father in all his glory. In verses 29 and 30, the disciples are, are starting to get it. They say, we, we believe you. You're speaking plainly now. I think, I'm, I think I'm getting it, Jesus. But Jesus brings the conversation back, back to earth, back to the fallen earth, back to the night that, in which he was betrayed. Verse 31. We'll read through to the end of the chapter here. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, it has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I love that, that final statement there. He says, take heart. That's the point. And Jesus has said, God loves you. And he knows you will leave me. Your failure doesn't cancel what God is doing. It does not cancel what God has done. In fact, your sin is your half of the equation that saves your life. You know, Jesus has, has told them in, earlier in chapter 16, I'm telling you the, these things that you wouldn't stumble and, and at that point, he had told them about the, the troubles that would come against them. You would be cast out of the synagogue, and those who kill you will think they do God's service. And he says, the Holy Spirit's coming to give you help. And he, he said both of those things so that they wouldn't stumble. And now he is saying, God loves you. He's saying it so clearly. There's no mysterious Greek words hidden in there. He just says it plainly in language so that they can understand. The Father himself loves you. And they say, we get it. Okay, we get it. You know why? Because that message, God loves you, is pretty simple to get. And it is still the simple message that we need to proclaim to the world. But Jesus, he questions it. He says, do you now believe? And the thing is, they don't know him as fully as they would in, you know, in a few days and then again in 50 days when the Spirit would come on Pentecost. But he's telling them, just in the next breath, he had just said, the Father loves you, but now he says, you will all be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. You are going to fail me. And the Father still loves you. You know, in, in, in uh, verse 16, he, he had said, you will not see me, but then you will see me. And he's contrasting things. You know, in verse 20, he says, you will weep and lament, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And in verse 24, he says, Now you ask nothing. You're not asking the right questions. You're not asking for the right things. But there's coming a time when you will ask the Father himself, and he will hear and answer. In verse 31, he says, You will, you will scatter. You're going to fail. And in verse 33, he says, But 
but in me you will have peace. I'm still making your peace. I'm still providing a place for you in my Father's house. You will fail, but the Father loves you. In verse 33, it's the best place to end, and so we will. Verse 33 says, In the world you will have tribulation. That is a promise of God that you can bank on, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus, let us rest in these truths. Let us set our feet on this solid rock, these confessions. God, let us always go to you, the overcomer, with our troubles, with our confusion, with all the conflicts in our souls. We come to you and, and rejoice in the simple, simple truth that you have declared to us. The Father himself loves us. Lord, let us walk in that light. Let us walk in that love. Let us rejoice in the love of the Father. Do your work in your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.